Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, as always, Councilman Tony Heil from Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know I've talked to people from every level of government, um, from every state plus D.C., uh, and uh, from Senate, from Bob Casey, all the way down to myself and uh, council members and school board members and state legislators. And today I'm really thrilled because I'm talking to someone who my parents have voted for and this year in 2022, maybe I will get to vote for as well. He is Congressman Connor Lamb, and he's got a really important story, I think, as he considers, not considers, as he is running for U.S. Senate here in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I hope that everyone's interested in hearing what he has to say. I could go on your your bio, but that would take the whole time we have. So, uh, Congressman, thanks for talking today. It's great to be here, Tony. Thanks for inviting me. So I want to. I always start out asking people how they got into politics, but your family is not new to the political scene, right? You have, have you always been involved in paying attention to politics, or was it something you, you know, begrudgingly got into as you grew up? No, I think I was always paying attention to it. Um, my uh, my grandfather was a state senator and. And my uncle Mike was a city official in Pittsburgh. So, you know, it's not like we're the Kennedys or something, but I grew up with people around local government and politics. And it was what, you know, uh, particularly the men in my family, uh, really everybody, though, talked about when we were at family gatherings. And so I think what I started to realize about myself later was that I just grew up with a more positive view of politics and understanding of it than most people. You know, a lot of people in our generation in particular are cynical about politics and, you know, they grew up during the Clinton impeachment scandals and then, you know, Bush took us to war on a faulty premise and you had 2008 and you had all these things that made people feel cynical about politics. And I just never quite felt that way. I think because of how I was raised, I was raised to think that it was something honorable um, and that it was a good thing to do with your life if you got a chance. That cynicism seems to be growing. It's really frustrating to get into, especially as a Democrat these days, maybe on the Republican side too, but um, I appreciate that you are not a doomerist, as I like to say. Uh, How do you combat that, especially these days with so much going on? Well, you know, I I think it's important. um, It's always important to light a candle rather than curse the darkness. You know, Mm -hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt used to say that Mm -hmm. uh, at the depths of the Depression. And so uh, I think any time that those of us who are public officials get a chance to um, kind of demonstrate our faith in the process and, and actually show people some real successes from, from keeping the faith. And I think there's actually a lot of reasons to do that right now. It's a difficult moment with the pandemic. But if you look at how hard everybody worked to get Biden elected in 2020 and to send people like me back to Congress, one of the things we were able to produce was probably the most progressive piece of legislation in our whole lifetime, the American Rescue Plan. And that was part of why last year we had more job growth than in any year since World War II. Um, We had more overall economic growth than any year in a really long time. Um, Unemployment claims are down at the end of the year more than they have been in 50 years. So it's not like everything is perfect, but um, we actually accomplished some things with the hard work and votes that people put forward in 2020. And we're leaving the country in a better place now and trying to build from that. So you always have to remind people to look at the good as well as the bad. And a lot of people, I think, again, cynically look at even something good like that and say, well, we elect any Democrat, they will do that. Um, What kind of perspectives do you bring in to those massive pieces of legislation um, that impact Pennsylvania? Well, a few things. One is I I don't think any Democrat 
could have been elected. And that's a really important point to focus on for our party. And mm-hmm. it's a big part of the argument I'm making in 2022. You know, there was this moment in the presidential primary where Bernie Sanders had $100 million and he had this grassroots army and he was dominating the airwaves and everything. And, and Joe Biden didn't have any money. I mean, I, I know some of the people that are closest to him. And there was more than one campaign staffer that was putting rental cars on their personal credit cards because the campaign had so little money. And yet, really with a moment's notice after South Carolina, our entire party shifted course and on its own made sure that he was the nominee for one simple reason, which is that everybody believed he was best suited to beat Donald Trump. And they were right. He got the highest number of votes in American history and he pulled off a really important accomplishment. Um, Likewise in the Congress, you know, in 2018, we took back the Congress after a series of primaries in which you had people like me, military veterans, you know, so-called moderates, people who were new to politics and not too extreme one way or the other, um, run for office. And many of them won primary contests against more liberal challengers. But then they went on to win the actual seats and put us in the actual majority so that when Biden came into office, we had a majority and could go ahead and pass big legislation. So it's always important for our party to focus on the need to win, you know, both in May, but especially in November. And that's a big issue in this primary as well. The only other thing I'll add about kind of what someone like me brings to the substance of legislation uh, is really just kind of making sure we stay focused on on one of the most important longtime constituencies of the Democratic Party, which is unions and the Mm -hmm. labor movement. And one of the things we did in the rescue plan that nobody ever remembers to talk about, but is really a big deal, was basically save the union pension system for a long time. Union pensions, especially what they call multi-employer pensions, where, you know, let's say that you're, you were a teamster who was basically a truck driver and you had a bunch of different employers throughout your life who you drove trucks for. Um, they all, you know, they all pay into the same pension plan to take care of these guys. And some of those were going under. Um, and it wasn't the teamster's fault. It was because of consolidation in the industry and the way that the industries have changed. Um, they needed to be backstopped. And in the rescue plan, we finally put the money into that system. So in Western Pennsylvania, Teamsters that I represented were supposed to be getting a $900 a month pension. They had worked their whole life for it and counted on it. That got cut to $600 in the years around 2017, 2018. Every month, you're losing a third of your pension. Hmm. And the rescue plan restored that back to the 900 it should be. So you know, that was something that I really focused on as a member of Congress and wanted to make sure was in a bill like that. Uh, and it's it's somewhere that the Democratic Party, I think we're getting better, but we have some work to do to always remember that labor was one of the most important building blocks of what we have. And I know right now everyone talks about Democrats winning, um, you know, upper class suburban votes. And that's great. Every vote is good. But I grew up thinking that the Democrats were more of a Pittsburgh type of thing with uh, labor unions and things like that. If, if you... We're winning a coalition, not you, Connor Lamb, but the of the rest of the Democrats winning coalitions that were really, um, you know, graduate level people, all those upper class districts. Do you think that they would be thinking in the same way about labor unions as being such an important part of the coalition? Yeah, I think the media environment um, sometimes makes Democrats forget about, you know, what our party is really like at the ground level. But you always have to remember that. You know, it's only around a quarter to a third of Americans, depending on how you measure it, even have bachelor's degrees, mm-hmm. much less graduate degrees like you're talking about. And so you wouldn't start a coalition by by narrowing it to a quarter or one third of Americans and trying to make everything this highly educated, intellectual, sort of culturally elite type of argument. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we do that, but I think we all know that there's the risk of that at times. 
Um, and one of the things that labor does is, is offer an incredible path forward in quality of life to people uh, who don't need to take out a bunch of stupid student loan debts to get a degree that is not going to be useful to what they do. I mean, a lot of ways, the smart kid now leaves high school, becomes an electrician, earns a ton of money without spending a cent, gets work experience, and then is in a better position to decide if they want to go get a degree that's relevant to what they're doing uh, or not. Um, so they, they offer a really nice, important path to people that we need to continue supporting and expanding. Now, I know you talked a few minutes ago about why you have a background um, that is electable. And I'm, your first presidential election would have been 2004. I was working in the primaries at that time. I'm not that much older, but I was, um, you know, that was a big buzzword and also kind of a, a curse word in a way in a lot of Democratic politics at the time. Like, oh, John Kerry's electable. And then I, when he lost, everyone said, see, a voting for electable doesn't in- inspire other people. Um, when I talked with Bob Casey on this podcast, I said, you know, you, ha- you were obviously the best person to run in 2006. Um, do you think it was important to run because winning was so important? Now, a lot of people see you and make that argument about being electable and they're like, oh, that just means he's saying he is Joe Manchin 2.0. He is going to be a Democrat in name only, that kind of verbiage. How do you assuage those fears that you are really just um, milk toast and not a, you know, a good Democrat like well, Bob Casey became? Well, I, I think what I need to do in this campaign and what I'm trying to do is is not have this abstract discussion like the way that you just framed it, but just point people to what my actual record and history is. I've been in public office now for almost four years, and I have a record both at the ballot box and in the halls of Congress. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's different about me from the other candidates in this race, it's not simply that I'm more electable in theory because of traits about me. It's that I have been elected three times in very difficult campaigns against Republicans in Republican districts. No other candidate in the race has done that, even the lieutenant governor. He, he is in statewide office, but he won a primary with about a third of the Democratic votes. And then it's it's Governor Wolf that you vote for in the general election. Right. It's just how our system works. That's not my experience. I've been the candidate on the ballot in the general election three times with Trump running against me, coming to my district, campaigning against me. The Republicans have spent probably 50 million bucks against me in the course of those three campaigns, attacking me on television, and I've stood up to it. So I I am personally tested. My campaign team and organization is tested in a way that no other candidate is here. You're not going to find out anything new about us in this campaign because it's all been tried before. And then the other part of my record is what have I done as a member of Congress? I have voted on every single issue and every single bill that is important to the Democratic Party. That is what we've done with our House majority. We have voted on a lot of bills that never saw any action in the Senate because we felt it was important to elevate these things and show people what we were for. So anyone who wants to talk about Senator Manchin or or comparing me to anyone else, you don't have to do that because you can look at what my actual votes are. You don't have to take my word for it. I have voted to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. I have voted to strengthen unions with the PRO Act. I have voted to protect a woman's right to choose. By putting Roe v. Wade into law, no matter what the Supreme Court does, I have voted for a Build Back Better. Uh, I have voted for drug price reform and to raise taxes on the wealthy. All the things that you you know, you know might think Joe Manchin gets on the wrong side of, I have voted the other way. Um, so people can see that, and, and I'm just telling you, obviously, I voted on those bills one way in the House, and I intend to vote the same way in the Senate. Yeah, I think that's a very important point to point out there. Um, you know, you, though we mentioned Joe Manchin, I do see this kind of... Um, 
thing that keeps happening with Democrats using him as their campaign instead of, you know, the Republicans. Um, is that a strategy you're going to employ too, spending your the next few months just campaigning against Joe Manchin? Or are you going to focus more against uh, winning the Democratic seat and going after the Republicans? No, again, what I'm going to do is is talk to people about what my actual record and ideas are and what I would bring to the office of being our next senator. This mm-hmm. is a job interview. It's not a performance. It's not auditioning for some kind of platform. Um, it's really not about what you put on Twitter. It's about how you would vote, what pieces of legislation you would work on, You know, your ability to work well with others, and what is a chamber that's about teamwork at the end of the day. Um, and I think those are traits that I've had to develop as a House member in a competitive district. And uh, it's something that I would bring to the Senate as well. So, I, you know, I like to focus on the, the bills I've worked on. Probably my, my proudest achievement was um, earlier this year getting to lead a bill in the House that became law, which put in place really strict methane standards on the natural gas system. And what was important about it was we actually got environmentalists, labor, and the business community all on the same page for a bill that made it tougher on, on companies that drill and distribute natural gas. But they wanted that because they actually want their climate impact to be better than it is today so that their industry could survive. And this regulation helps create jobs for plumbers and pipe fitters who have to go out and actually plug the leaks and make sure that the regulation is complied with. Um, And I got to go to the White House for a signing ceremony with President Biden. And so, you know, is that the issue that you're going to see when you open your Philly Inquirer every morning or the New York Times on the front page? No, but it's incredibly significant for our state and I would say for the world because of climate change. Um, and those are the things I like to try to work on. So one thing, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the job interview question because you first ran, you've run three campaigns, like you said, all very difficult. And the first one you ran was kind of like the bellwether, the, the, uh, canary in the coal mine in a way, in a good way, I guess, uh, for the Democrats in 2018. What was the motivation to you to run? Was it because you thought you were the best candidate, that it was winnable, um, that no one else was doing it? What, made sure that you were going to run um, in that first special election? You know, I think for me, it was this feeling I had that I had been spending a lot of my career up to that point as a prosecutor, and I really enjoyed it, and I felt like I was doing good work. But you also, in a job like that, get to see, um, you know, how much of of crime and problems in our society are driven by these bigger root causes. And I I was working on a lot of um, heroin and fentanyl prosecutions and meeting families that had lost you know, people my age to the heroin epidemic in these towns all around Western Pennsylvania. Um, and I just felt like there was more I could be doing to address some of those root causes and, and try to help and protect a lot of these communities where I had grown up playing high school basketball and knew people and they were going through a rough time. So that was really my biggest motivation for wanting to become a legislator is you, you get to take on a lot more issues, try to make a deeper impact for the people that you represent. And I think also after Trump got elected, just as a Western Pennsylvanian, it, it, it kind of blew my mind the way uh, we had lost so many of our Democratic votes. I mean, Western Pennsylvania really used to be a strong vote bank for Democrats mm-hmm. outside of Allegheny County, you know, in the places that I represent, Washington County, uh, Beaver County, these were Westmoreland. These were huge, huge places for the Democrats that had, had changed um, in Trump's time. Uh, and I wanted to see if we could get some of those people back. And we did. Um, and that's that's part of the reason I've been successful is we went and um, refocused a lot of those voters on issues like pensions and paychecks uh, and health care and unions and got away from some of the stuff that attracted them to Trump and helped them see, you know, that, that Trump's entire campaign and presidency was just another fraud where 
he promised things that he never delivered, never intended to deliver. Uh, and I think that's part of why I can be successful this coming year too, is, is I know how to connect with people. Again, with me, in comparison to the other candidates, this is not a hypothetical or imaginary thing. It's something I've had to go out and do to win in the first place, mm-hmm. to talk to people and get used to answering their questions. Um, and so I can bring that to this campaign as well. So I do want to circle back to that again, but you, one of the things that really attracted me to your background was your work on uh, fentanyl and those overdoses. Have you seen the show Dope Sick, first of all? And, you know, what can we do as a legis- uh, in um, Congress or state legislatures or even my local government to impact things like the opioid crisis? Because I think everyone I know, including myself, has been touched by it in some way, shape or form. I haven't seen the show yet, but I've heard Michael Keaton talking about it, and I understand the basic story. Please watch um, it if you can. It is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it, w- the thing to understand is that for a number of years, I would say from 2010, kind of like till right before the pandemic, we were making progress in society on this issue. Overdose deaths were going down. Um, and one of the ways that we were doing that was really increasing the health insurance resources for people in this situation so that they could get coverage for behavioral health, addiction treatment, underlying physical issues, many of which are co-occurring for people and help cause the addiction. Um, Obviously, one of the biggest medical interventions there can be are drugs like buprenorphine that help people who have addiction, which is a brain disease, um, deal with the symptoms of that brain disease. And, And they've made some remarkable advances in medicine. Um, but for a long time, like everything else in healthcare, we've just had a hard time reaching the people who need it most sometimes because they're poor. They might be disconnected from their community. They're not necessarily the people that sign up for and maintain health insurance. Um, so we were doing a decent job at that for a while under the Affordable Care Act, making that more and more available. And then the pandemic came along and there were a lot of people thrown out of work, forced into isolation, um, given money by the government to try to help them survive. But it clearly... Um, helped drive rates of substance abuse through the roof, and we lost a record number of Americans to drug addictions last year. And so we're kind of back to square one now. Uh, and I think the biggest thing to kind of sum it all up is you just have to build, you have to build the availability of healthcare and mental health care into the system so that in that one brief moment, if you talk to people who have a family member or a friend that suffers from addiction, there's typically only one very short moment where that person shows a willingness to get treatment and change their life. And if you don't have a bed available that day for that person, if you don't have a facility available for them that moment, you might lose them forever. And and the ability to have that at kind of an unpredictable moment means you have to overbuild the system in some ways so mm-hmm. that there's always availability. And, and we've gotten away from that. We have a shortage again. It's hard to get treatment for people, especially with the restrictions of the pandemic. And so we have a lot of work to do to, to rebuild that. Yeah, I appreciate you knowing that from the start instead of having to learn it. Um, I do want to go back to how you said about job interview, and this was an important thing to me, is that this will be your fourth job interview, but it's kind of different because it's like going from one level to the next at a company, right? So how is Connor Lamb, the legislator or the person, different in 2022 than in 2018 when you first ran? What kind of ways are you um, bringing something different to the table than you might have it before? Uh, I would hope that I've gotten to know the issues a lot better. Um, and, you know, what I would say has probably become my my signature set of issues or the things that I focus the most on now um, are really the energy transition that we're undergoing as a result of climate change and 
its impact on jobs and the ability to create jobs here in a state like Pennsylvania that has a lot of older industries and older energy sources and we're looking to transition into the 21st century. I was able to serve on President Biden's advisory team on that subject during the 2020 campaign. It's been a big focus of my work. Um, when I first ran for Congress, I barely talked about that issue at all. It wasn't an issue I really knew. I, I am a lawyer by trade, not an engineer or scientist or anything. Um, but the more I learned about my community and what some of the underlying issues were and just sort of thought about the future, um, I, I couldn't escape this idea that climate change is, is really the number one long-term looming threat to the United States and to the world in, in just basic national security terms. And that in a state like Pennsylvania, uh, we really have to get this right to make sure that we come out ahead. You know, we have a lot of people that work in natural gas, a lot of people that work in steel, a lot of people that make cement, um, a lot of people that do heavy construction and industry of various types. And it's really not obvious to them whether a transition to a lower carbon economy is going to be good for them. I think it can be. If we get things right, it really can be. But it means knowing your stuff uh, and making investments in the right way so that people understand how it benefits them. It's going to be a major, major challenge. I think some people in our party think, you know, we just need to talk about climate change enough and we'll get a carbon tax or something and it's all going to be fixed at the end of the day. But it's not. It's going to be really hard for us to do the right things to meet our climate goals. And, and that's probably now what I think about and, and, and sort of keep at the front of my mind. And that was not something in 2018 that, that I was as obsessed with as I've become. Well, I, I really appreciate that answer. Um, and I think that there are other people who run for office who say I'm the same person I've been forever, which is concerning to me that someone wouldn't change their mind or learn from their experience. Um, now, one experience you did have, and I really appreciated you sharing this again last week, was your speech um, on January 6th last year. Uh, what was, did you plan that all out yourself? Because you, you didn't know what was going to happen. Um, how did, thank you for standing up for our votes, but also, you know, what was your thinking going into how you stood up for those votes in, uh, last January? Um, yeah, actually what I planned to do that day, what our job really was, was for the Pennsylvania delegation to come in, um, and manage an hour of debate about the Pennsylvania electoral votes because the Pennsylvania electoral votes were challenged by a number of Republicans. Uh, and so what that causes then is like an hour of debate on the House floor about whether we should accept those electoral votes. And so it was our job as Pennsylvania Democrats to go in and, and defend the integrity of, of those votes. So I intended to give a, a speech, you know, sort of like I would have given a closing, ar closing argument in a trial as a prosecutor of, of really summing up the evidence and, and why people should be convinced in sort of a logical way that the election results were something you can trust. Um, but after the events of that day and walking back into the chamber and, you know, seeing the broken glass and the police tape where Ashley Babbitt was killed and just the overall environment uh, and then sitting there for a while and listening to other people talk and, you know, just watching the Republicans basically say the exact same stuff that they said before the attack as if that, you know, didn't mean anything to their position. Yeah, I realized that it wasn't a logical argument that we needed to be having. You had a group of people in that chamber who were doing something deeply unpatriotic and wrong, which was just continue to um, basically make arguments about the big lie of the election. You know, that their, their arguments were sort of dressed up versions of that having to do with the role of state legislatures. But none of them had any point to them unless you were 
enabling or, or allowing for the possibility of, of the big lie that Trump had actually won and Biden had, which we know isn't true. We knew then it wasn't true. We know today it's not true. And so uh, instead of giving, giving sort of a logical point by point refutation of the things that they were saying, I, I just thought it was important to speak to whoever was watching outside the chamber, because those people were not going to be listening to a logical or point by point argument. Um, and I thought it was time to shame them and just tell the American people what was really happening, which was that these people were repeating lies in our chamber and they were the same lies, the same exact lies that had caused the violence that day and that therefore they were complicit in it. And, uh, you know, that, that sparked a pretty angry <laughs> reaction by the Republicans who were in the room with me. And, almost led to a fist fight, but I, I just felt strongly. <laughs> I wouldn't want to fight you. I'm just saying, I don't think I've other people in Congress, you know, Brendan Boyle, he's another congressman who did my podcast. Maybe I would fight him, but We're not pretty scrappy. <laughs> I don't know. And he was in there with me. So I, I, I suspect that he and I would have been in the foxhole together, but thankfully it never <laughs> got to that. Um, but speaking of foxhole after that, it, I did it a couple weeks later after the insurrection, after all of that, there was the congressional baseball game. So you had people on both sides who, like yourself and others, that you weren't on the team as far as I know, but um, who were like, these people committed the worst atrocity in our government ever. Not ever, but, you know, it's a horrible thing. But also we're going to play a friendly game of baseball with Mo Brooks. How do you, to a voter, say, not maybe not you, but to others, this is one of the worst things an elected official can do. And also they're my friend who I play baseball with. Yeah, I mean that was it was about nine months later that they did that. Um, I wasn't on the team, of course. Uh, I, I think it's tough, you know, because the remember that at the end of the day we represent people, um, and we're supposed to be doing their bidding and, and trying to you know trying to do what the people who elect us want us to do. And and in the public itself, you have uh, some differences of opinion on this word where people I think roundly condemn January 6th and they think it was wrong and they don't want to ever see it again. But you ask them if you want, if they want Republicans and Democrats working together and trying to get along to eat with each other and they'll say yes. Um, so part of representing your constituents, I think is trying to find some ways to work with the other side and not, not totally, um, you know, destroy the relationship that you have with them. Now, some of them, like Mo Brooks, who you mentioned, are completely beyond the pale. I mean, the guy is, is essentially part of an ongoing insurrection from within our own government. So I, I don't think you'd see anyone on our side really trying to buddy up or, or pursue legislation with him. But as far as why some of those traditions continue, like the baseball game, I think that's why um, is people feel some obligation to try to keep keep the process moving down here. So I have two more questions. One with is hopefully an easy answer for you. One might be, um, they're not hard questions, but first, to get out of the way, if you're campaigning this spring in Pennsylvania and you come to Montgomery County, will you join us for ice cream at Frosty Falls in Bridgeport? I have to ask that now so I don't forget at the end. Of course. Yeah, you should hold me to that. It sounds, I'm assuming that place is good if you're asking about it. They, um, my friend Laura owns it. It was ruined in the hurricane this year. So we have you on the record. You will come eat ice cream at Frosty Falls with us. And, and good. so let's get with our Democratic committee. And then lastly, I don't want to leave you without asking this. Um, I recently had a state representative of Colorado, David Ortiz. He is a young veteran um, and who served overseas. You are a young veteran as well. How are the the experiences and needs of 21st century veterans um, unique uh, today, maybe then different than before. And what can we as government officials do to properly address that? 
And you don't need to give a 20 minute answer. I understand. Yeah. There's a lot of ways. Uh, Maybe I would highlight two. Mm -hmm. One of is that um, we have a lot more women in the 21st century veteran population than we've ever had before. And that creates some real needs in the VA health system um, as far as building out facilities for, you know, women's medical care, which is just different than the the classic population you had of a lot of men. Um, and that's something we've dealt with on, I serve on the veterans committee in the house and we're always trying to work on ways to build out a better experience for women at the VA hospitals. Cause some of them have had really awful experiences and, and you want every veteran, no matter who they are to be treated right. Um, that's what we owe them as government. So that's one big one. And then I think the other is, you know, people our age, uh, leaving the military now in their twenties and thirties, millennials, Gen Z, whatever, it's a much more mobile population throughout the course of their life, uh, taking jobs in different cities, you know, moving around, uh, and the VA model of healthcare was really built around, you know, these regional hospitals where veterans would, would live close to their entire life. And so you'd have like a really large hospital built to serve everyone within a hundred mile radius or something. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know that that fits the life that younger veterans are living necessarily because they're hopping around so much and it, it, it starts to seem kind of pointless to them to do all the work of like signing up for the system and getting into the system. If you're going to be moving one year to the next, and sometimes you might have a good VA hospital there and other times you might not, it just doesn't seem as, as worthwhile to them. So one of the things that we've tried to do uh, is we've, we've included the ability to get non-VA healthcare paid for by the VA. So it's called community care. If you're somewhere where you don't have a VA close by or they're not offering what you need, you call the VA and they actually coordinate it for you and help you get an appointment in the, in the private sector, basically. Um, and a lot of younger veterans like to take advantage of that. Um, but then the other thing we just really need to do is, is get rid of a lot of the hurdles of joining the VA in the first place. What you typically find is, is once people are in the VA system and they know they can go places and get treatment without any hurdles, they're happy with it. It's good quality care. It really is. Um, it's hard to join. You, you show up and you wait forever and you fill out a million questionnaires. And it's all the stuff that those of us who served in the military hated about being in the military, you know, the constant filling out of forms and waiting in lines and dealing with bureaucracy. So we're trying to you know, use technology to basically digitally integrate the, the active duty military with the VA system so that when you leave the active duty, a lot of your information just transfers over and you automatically become eligible and enrolled. Um, that's that's a much more difficult technical task than it sounds like, but we're working on it now. I, I really appreciate those detailed answers. I do just want to ask one last nice thing. Um you are a new father. You have a history in your family in politics, but now you have a different responsibility as a father. Um, does your perspective change in terms of what legacy or inspiration you want to give to your child as they grow up and see what you did in this time? Um, you know, I, I don't know that it changes so much, like how I want him to see me or feel about my work. You know, I was raised to try to always approach things with integrity and think about the family name no matter what. So, you know, for me getting into Congress, I I was always thinking about my grandfather and his legacy. And I think I still would feel that way, whether I had a son or not. I think what having my son and and we're having a second child this year in 2022, um, what it really focuses me in on are, first of all, the stakes of a long-term problem like climate change and just the the physical world that we're going to be leaving for our kids and whether it is safe for them and whether it's better than we found it. Um, but then I think the other thing is just 
when you go through the experience of, of your child being born and, and taking care of your child at these really vulnerable stages, it makes you think about, you know, what kids go through all over our country that don't have what I had, you know, which is a really supportive extended family and great health insurance and the ability to have a good experience in the hospital. And, you know, there's a lot of child poverty in the United States and kids who are being raised in very, very uncertain environments where, um, just their day-to-day life is filled with stress and fear and anxiety in a way that it won't ever be for my son. Um, and so I think this year appreciating something like the child tax credit that we had that, that literally took almost half of American kids who were in poverty and pulled them out of it, at least on paper. Um, I, I feel much more strongly about committing to that and trying to renew it for the long term than I probably would have if I hadn't had the experience of starting to raise a child myself and understanding, you know, what they cost and how much it matters if you have what they need every day. All right. I appreciate that. Lastly, you are running for Senate. You want people to know who you are throughout the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Where should people go to follow you, um, either in social media or wherever? Uh, ConnorLamb.com is probably the best. Got information there about uh, where I stand on the issues and volunteering for the campaign and, of course, donating to the campaign. And uh, we've got uh, everything translated into Spanish as well, ConnorLamb.com, for anyone that's interested in taking it in that way. And we're trying to put out some Spanish language you know, video and material to reach those voters too. It's a growing and very, very important part of the electorate, um, particularly as you move up the Lehigh Valley from the Philly area. So, uh, so you can go there to, to find out about us. And um, if I'm doing my job right, you'll see me out on the campaign trail in your town or in your county. And I hope you'll come out and say hello. And you'll see Connor at Frosty Falls this spring, most likely. Falls, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Best of luck. And uh, if you're listening, maybe you should run for office too.